Hello, I'm Richard Burnip, and this is part two of Dickens's The Wreck of the Golden Mary. We left the narrative halfway through Dickens's contribution to the special Christmas number of Household Words, the weekly magazine that he edited. This particular number published at Christmas 1856. We've been listening to the story as told by Captain Ravender of the Golden Mary, up to the point when the ship sinks, having struck an iceberg. And he's going to pick up the story, but not all of it, as you'll hear. I suppose if we had all stood atop of a mountain and seen the whole remainder of the world sink away from under us, we could hardly have felt more shocked and solitary than we did when we knew we were alone on the wide ocean and that the beautiful ship in which most of us had been securely asleep within half an hour was gone forever. There was an awful silence in our boat and such a kind of palsy on the rowers and the man at the rudder that I felt they were scarcely keeping her before the sea. I spoke out then and said, Let everyone here thank the Lord for our preservation. All the voices answered, even the child's, We thank the Lord. I then said the Lord's Prayer, and all hands said it after me with a solemn murmuring. Then I gave the word, Cheerily, O men, cheerily! And I felt that they were handling the boat again as a boat ought to be handled. The surf boat now burnt another blue light to show us where they were, and we made for her and laid ourselves as nearly alongside of her as we dared. I had always kept my boats with a coil or two of good stout stuff in each of them, so both boats had a rope at hand. We made a shift, with much labour and trouble, to get near enough to one another to divide the blue lights. They were no use after that night, for the sea water soon got at them and to get a tow-rope out between us. All night long we kept together, sometimes obliged to cast off the rope, and sometimes getting it out again, and all of us wearying for the morning, which appeared so long in coming that old Mr. Rocks screamed out in spite of his fears of me, The world is drawing to an end, and the sun will never rise any more. When the day broke, I found that we were all huddled together in a miserable manner. We were deep in the water, being, as I found on mustering, thirty-one in number, or at least six too many. In the surf-boat they were fourteen in number, being at least four too many. The first thing I did was to get myself passed to the rudder, which I took from that time, and to get Mrs. Atherfield, her child, and Miss Coleshaw passed on to sit next me. As to old Mr. Rarks, I put him in the bow, as far from us as I could, and I put some of the best men near us in order that if I should drop, there might be a skilful hand ready to take the helm. The sea moderating as the sun came up, though the sky was cloudy and wild, we spoke the other boat to know what stores they had, and to overhaul what we had. I had a compass in my pocket, a small telescope, a double-barrelled pistol, a knife, and a firebox and matches. Most of my men had knives, 
and some had a little tobacco, some a pipe as well. We had a mug among us and an iron spoon. As to provisions, there were in my boat two bags of biscuit, one piece of raw beef, one piece of raw pork, a bag of coffee, roasted but not ground, thrown in, I imagine, by mistake for something else, two small casks of water, and about half a gallon of rum in a keg. The surf-boat, having rather more rum than we, and fewer to drink it, gave us, as I estimated, another quart into our keg. In return, we gave them three double handfuls of coffee, tied up in a piece of a handkerchief. They reported that they had aboard, besides, a bag of biscuit, a piece of beef, a small cask of water, a small box of lemons, and a Dutch cheese. It took a long time to make these exchanges, and they were not made without risk to both parties, the sea running quite high enough to make our approaching near to one another very hazardous. In the bundle with the coffee, I conveyed to John Steadyman, who had a ship's compass with him, a paper written in pencil and torn from my pocket-book containing the course I meant to steer in the hope of making land or being picked up by some vessel. I say in the hope, though I had little hope of either deliverance. I then sang out to him so as all might hear that if we two boats could live or die together we would, but that if we should be parted by the weather and join company no more, they should have our prayers and blessings, and we asked for theirs. We then gave them three cheers, which they returned, and I saw the men's heads droop in both boats as they fell to their oars again. These arrangements had occupied the general attention advantageously for all, though, as I expressed in the last sentence, they ended in a sorrowful feeling. I now said a few words to my fellow voyagers on the subject of the small stock of food on which our lives depended, if they were preserved from the great deep, and on the rigid necessity of our eking it out in the most frugal manner. One and all replied that whatever allowance I thought best to lay down should be strictly kept to. We made a pair of scales out of a thin strap of iron plating and some twine, and I got together for weights, such of the heaviest buttons among us, as I calculated made up some fraction over two ounces. This was the allowance of solid food served out once a day to each, from that time to the end, with the addition of a coffee berry, or sometimes half a one, when the weather was very fair, for breakfast. We had nothing else whatever, but half a pint of water each per day, and sometimes, when we were coldest and weakest, a teaspoonful of rum each served out as a dram. I know how learnedly it can be shown that rum is poison, but I also know that in this case, as in all similar cases I have ever read of, which are numerous, no words can express the comfort and support derived from it, nor have I the least doubt that it saved the lives of far more than half our number. Having mentioned half a pint of water as our daily allowance, I ought to observe that sometimes we had less, and sometimes we had more, for much rain fell, and we caught it in a canvas stretched for the purpose. Thus, at that tempestuous time of the year, and in that tempestuous part of the world, 
we shipwrecked people rose and fell with the waves. It is not my intention to relate, if I can avoid it, such circumstances appertaining to our doleful condition as have been better told in many other narratives of the kind than I can be expected to tell them. I will only note in so many passing words that day after day and night after night we received the sea upon our backs to prevent it from swamping the boat, that one party was always kept bailing, and that every hat and cap among us soon got worn out, though patched up fifty times as the only vessels we had for that service, that another party lay down in the bottom of the boat while a third rowed, and that we were soon all in boils and blisters and rags. The other boat was a source of such anxious interest to all of us that I used to wonder whether, if we were saved, the time could ever come when the survivors in this boat of ours could be at all indifferent to the fortunes of the survivors in that. We got out a tow-rope whenever the weather permitted, but that did not often happen and how we two parties kept within the same horizon as we did, he who mercifully permitted it to be so for our consolation only knows. I never shall forget the looks with which, when the morning light came, we used to gaze about us over the stormy waters for the other boat. We once parted company for seventy-two hours, and we believed them to have gone down as they did us, the joy on both sides when we came within view of one another again had something in a manner divine in it. Each was so forgetful of individual suffering, in tears of delight and sympathy for the people in the other boat. I have been wanting to get round to the individual or personal part of my subject, as I call it, and the foregoing incident puts me in the right way. The patience and good disposition aboard of us was wonderful. I was not surprised by it in the women, for all men born of women know what great qualities they will show when men will fail, but I own I was a little surprised by it in some of the men. Among one and thirty people assembled at the best of times, there will usually, I should say, be two or three uncertain tempers. I knew that I had more than one rough temper with me among my own people, for I had chosen those for the longboat that I might have them under my eye. But they softened under their misery, and were as considerate of the ladies and as compassionate of the child as the best among us, or among men. They could not have been more so. I heard scarcely any complaining. The party lying down would moan a good deal in their sleep, and I would often notice a man, not always the same man, it is to be understood, but nearly all of them at one time or other, sitting moaning at his oar, or in his place, as he looked mistily over the sea. When it happened to be long before I could catch his eye, he would go on moaning all the time in the dismalest manner, but when our looks met, he would brighten and leave off. I almost always got the impression that he did not know what sound he had been making, but that he thought he had been humming a tune. Our sufferings from cold and wet were far greater than our sufferings from hunger. We managed to keep the child warm, 
but I doubt if any one else among us ever was warm for five minutes together, and the shivering and the chattering of teeth were sad to hear. The child cried a little at first for her lost playfellow, the Golden Mary, but hardly ever whimpered afterwards, and when the state of the weather made it possible, she used now and then to be held up in the arms of some of us to look over the sea for John Steadyman's boat. I see the golden hair and the innocent face now, between me and the driving clouds, like an angel going to fly away. It had happened on the second day towards night that Mrs. Atherfield, in getting little Lucy to sleep, sang her a song. She had a soft, melodious voice, and when she had finished it, our people up and begged for another. She sang them another, and after it had fallen dark, ended with the evening hymn. From that time, whenever anything could be heard above the sea and wind, and while she had any voice left, nothing would serve the people but that she should sing at sunset. She always did, and always ended with the evening hymn. We mostly took up the last line, and shed tears when it was done, but not miserably. We had a prayer night and morning also when the weather allowed of it. Twelve nights and eleven days we had been driving in the boat, when old Mr. Rarks began to be delirious, and to cry out to me to throw the gold overboard, or it would sink us, and we should all be lost. For days past, the child had been declining, and that was the great cause of his wildness. He had been over and over again shrieking out to me to give her all the remaining meat, to give her all the remaining rum, to save her at any cost, or we should all be ruined. At this time she lay in her mother's arms at my feet. One of her little hands was almost always creeping about her mother's neck or chin. I had watched the wasting of the little hand, and I knew it was nearly over. The old man's cries were so discordant with the mother's love and submission that I called out to him in an angry voice, unless he held his peace on the instant I would order him to be knocked on the head and thrown overboard. He was mute then, until the child died, very peacefully, an hour afterwards which was known to all in the boat by the mother's breaking out into lamentations for the first time since the wreck, for she had great fortitude and constancy, though she was a little gentlewoman. Old Mr. Rarks then became quite ungovernable, tearing what rags he had on him, raging in imprecations and calling to me that if I had thrown the gold overboard, always the gold with him. I might have saved the child. And now, says he in a terrible voice, we shall founder and all go to the devil, for our sins will sink us when we have no innocent child to bear us up. We so discovered with amazement that this old wretch had only cared for the life of the pretty little creature dear to all of us, because of the influence he superstitiously hoped she might have in preserving him. Altogether it was too much for the smith or armourer who was sitting next the old man to bear, 
He took him by the throat and rolled him under the thwarts where he lay still enough for hours afterwards. All that thirteenth night, Miss Coleshaw, lying across my knees as I kept the helm, comforted and supported the poor mother. Her child, covered with a pea-jacket of mine, lay in her lap. It troubled me all night to think that there was no prayer-book among us, and that I could remember but very few of the exact words of the burial service. When I stood up at broad day, all knew what was going to be done, and I noticed that my poor fellows made the motion of uncovering their heads, though their heads had been stark bare to the sky and sea for many a weary hour. There was a long, heavy swell on, but otherwise it was a fair morning, and there were broad fields of sunlight on the waves in the east. I said no more than this. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He raised the daughter of Jairus, the ruler, and said she was not dead but slept. He raised the widow's son. He arose himself and was seen of many. He loved little children, saying, Suffer them to come unto me, and rebuke them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In his name, my friends, and committed to his merciful goodness. With those words, I laid my rough face softly on the placid little forehead and buried the golden Lucy in the grave of the golden Mary. Having had it on my mind to relate the end of this dear little child, I have omitted something from its exact place which I will supply here. It will come quite as well here as anywhere else, foreseeing that if the boat lived through the stormy weather, the time must come and soon come when we should have absolutely no morsel to eat. I had one momentous point often in my thoughts. Although I had, years before that, fully satisfied myself that the instances in which human beings in the last distress have fed upon each other are exceedingly few, and have very seldom indeed, if ever, occurred when the people in distress, however dreadful their extremity, have been accustomed to moderate forbearance and restraint, I say, though I had long before quite satisfied my mind on this topic, I felt doubtful whether there might not have been in former cases some harm or danger from keeping it out of sight and pretending not to think of it. I felt doubtful whether some minds growing weak with fasting and exposure and having such a terrific idea to dwell upon in secret, might not magnify it until it got to have an awful attraction about it. This was not a new thought of mine, for it had grown out of my reading. However, it came over me stronger than it had ever done before, as it had reason for doing, in the boat, and on the fourth day I decided that I would bring out into the light that unformed fear which must have been more or less darkly in every brain among us. Therefore, as a means of beguiling the time and inspiring hope, I gave them the best summary in my power of Bly's voyage of more than three thousand miles in an open boat after the mutiny of the bounty, and of the wonderful preservation of that boat's crew. They listened throughout with great interest, and I concluded by telling them that, in my opinion, 
the happiest circumstance in the whole narrative was that Bly, who was no delicate man either, had solemnly placed it on record therein that he was sure and certain that under no conceivable circumstances whatever would that emaciated party who had gone through all the pains of famine have preyed on one another. I cannot describe the visible relief which this spread through the boat, and how the tears stood in every eye. From that time I was as well convinced as Bly himself that there was no danger, and that this phantom, at any rate, did not haunt us. Now, it was a part of Bly's experience that when the people in his boat were most cast down, nothing did them so much good as hearing a story told by one of their number. When I mentioned that, I saw that it struck the general attention as much as it did my own, for I had not thought of it until I came to it in my summary. This was on the day after Mrs. Atherfield first sang to us. I proposed that, whenever the weather would permit, we should have a story two hours after dinner. I always issued the allowance I have mentioned at one o'clock, and called it by that name, as well as our song at sunset. The proposal was received with a cheerful satisfaction that warmed my heart within me, and I do not say too much when I say that those two periods in the four-and-twenty hours were expected with positive pleasure, and were really enjoyed by all hands. Spectres as we soon were in our bodily wasting, our imaginations did not perish like the gross flesh upon our bones. Music and adventure! two of the great gifts of providence to mankind, could charm us long after that was lost. The wind was almost always against us after the second day, and for many days together we could not nearly hold our own. We had all varieties of bad weather. We had rain, hail, snow, wind, mist, thunder and lightning. Still, the boats lived through the heavy seas, and still we perishing people rose and fell with the great waves. Sixteen nights and fifteen days, twenty nights and nineteen days, twenty-four nights and twenty-three days, so the time went on. Disheartening as I know that our progress or want of progress must be, I never deceived them as to my calculations of it. In the first place, I felt that we were all too near eternity for deceit. In the second place, I knew that if I failed or died, the man who followed me must have a knowledge of the true state of things to begin upon. When I told them at noon what I reckoned we had made or lost, they generally received what I said in a tranquil and resigned manner, and always gratefully towards me. It was not unusual at any time of the day for someone to burst out weeping loudly without any new cause, and, when the burst was over, to calm down a little better than before. I had seen exactly the same thing in a house of mourning. During the whole of this time, old Mr. Rarks had had his fits of calling out to me to throw the gold, always the gold, overboard, and of heaping violent reproaches upon me for not having saved the child. But now, the food being all gone, and I having nothing left to serve out but a bit of coffee-berry now and then, 
he began to be too weak to do this, and consequently fell silent. Mrs. Atherfield and Miss Colshaw generally lay each with an arm across one of my knees and her head upon it. They never complained at all. Up to the time of her child's death, Mrs. Atherfield had bound up her own beautiful hair every day, and I took particular notice that this was always before she sang her song at night when everyone looked at her, but she never did it after the loss of her darling. And it would have been now all tangled with dirt and wet, but that Miss Colshaw was careful of it long after she was herself, and would sometimes smooth it down with her weak, thin hands. We were past mustering a story now, but one day at about this period I reverted to the superstition of old Mr. Rarks concerning the Golden Lucy, and told them that nothing vanished from the eye of God, though much might pass away from the eyes of men. We were all of us, says I, children once, and our baby feet have strolled in green woods ashore, and our baby hands have gathered flowers in gardens where the birds were singing. The children that we were are not lost to the great knowledge of our Creator. Those innocent creatures will appear with us before him and plead for us. What we were in the best time of our generous youth will arise and go with us too. The purest part of our lives will not desert us at the pass to which all of us here present are gliding. What we were then will be as much in existence before him as what we are now. They were no less comforted by this consideration than I was myself, and Miss Colshaw, drawing my ear nearer to her lips, said, Captain Ravender, I was on my way to marry a disgraced and broken man whom I dearly loved when he was honourable and good. Your words seem to have come out of my own poor heart. She pressed my hand upon it, smiling. 27 Nights and 26 Days We were in no want of rainwater, but we had nothing else. And yet, even now, I never turned my eyes upon a waking face, but it tried to brighten before mine. Oh, what a thing it is! In a time of danger and in the presence of death, the shining of a face upon a face. I have heard it broached that orders should be given in great new ships by electric telegraph. I admire machinery as much as any man, and am as thankful to it as any man can be for what it does for us. But it will never be a substitute for the face of a man with his soul in it, encouraging another man to be brave and true. Never try it for that. It will break down like a straw. I now began to remark certain changes in myself which I did not like. They caused me much disquiet. I often saw the Golden Lucy in the air above the boat. I often saw her, I have spoken of before, sitting beside me. I saw the Golden Mary go down, as she really had gone down, 
twenty times in a day. And yet the sea was mostly, to my thinking, not sea, neither, but moving country and extraordinary mountainous regions, the like of which have never been beheld. I felt it time to leave my last words regarding John Steadyman in case any lips should last out to repeat them to any living ears. I said that John had told me, as he had on deck, that he had sung out, Breakers ahead, the instant they were audible, and had tried to wear ship, but she struck before it could be done. His cry, I dare say, had made my dream. I said that the circumstances were altogether without warning, and out of any course that could have been guarded against, that the same loss would have happened if I had been in charge, and that John was not to blame, but from first to last had done his duty nobly like the man he was. I tried to write it down in my pocket-book, but could make no words, though I knew what the words were that I wanted to make. When it had come to that, her hands, though she was dead so long, laid me down gently in the bottom of the boat, and she and the Golden Lucy swung me to sleep. All that follows was written by John Steadyman, Chief Mate. On the twenty-sixth day after the foundering of the Golden Mary at sea, I, John Steadyman, was sitting in my place in the stern sheets of the surf-boat, with just sense enough left in me to steer, that is to say, with my eyes strained wide awake over the bows of the boat and my brains fast asleep and dreaming, when I was roused upon a sudden by our second mate, Mr. William Rames. "'Let me take a spell in your place,' says he, "'and look you out for the long-boat astern. The last time she rose on the crest of a wave I thought I made out a signal flying aboard her.' We shifted our places, clumsily and slowly enough, for we were both of us weak and dazed with wet, cold and hunger. I waited some time watching the heavy rollers astern before the long-boat rose atop of one of them at the same time with us. At last she was heaved up for a moment well in view, and there, sure enough, was the signal flying aboard of her. A strip of rag of some sort rigged to an oar and hoisted in her bows. "'What does it mean?' says Rames to me in a quavering, trembling sort of voice. They signal a sail in sight? Hush, for God's sake, says I, clapping my hand over his mouth. Don't let the people hear you. They'll all go mad together if we mislead them about that signal. Wait a bit, till I have another look at it. I held on by him, for he had set me all of a tremble with his notion of a sail in sight, and watched for the longboat again. Up she rose, on the top of another roller. I made out the signal clearly, that second time, and saw that it was rigged half-mast high. Rames, says I, it's a signal of distress. Pass the word forward to keep her before the sea and no more. We must get the longboat within hailing distance of us as soon as possible. I dropped down into my old place at the tiller without another word, for the thought went through me like a knife that something had happened to Captain Ravender. 
I should consider myself unworthy to write another line of this statement if I had not made up my mind to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and I must therefore confess plainly that now, for the first time, my heart sank within me. This weakness on my part was produced in some degree, as I take it, by the exhausting effects of previous anxiety and grief. Our provisions, if I may give that name to what we had left, were reduced to the rind of one lemon and about a couple of handfuls of coffee berries. Besides these great distresses caused by the death, the danger and the suffering among my crew and passengers, I had had a little distress of my own to shake me still more in the death of the child whom I had got to be very fond of on the voyage out, so fond that I was secretly a little jealous of her being taken in the longboat instead of mine when the ship foundered. It used to be a great comfort to me, and I think to those with me also, after we had seen the last of the Golden Mary, to see the Golden Lucy held up by the men in the longboat when the weather allowed it as the best and brightest sight they had to show. She looked, at the distance we saw her from, almost like a little white bird in the air. To miss her for the first time, when the weather lulled a little again, and we all looked out for our white bird and looked in vain, was a sore disappointment. To see the men's heads bowed down, and the captain's hand pointing into the sea, when we hailed the longboat a few days after, gave me as heavy a shock and as sharp a pang of heartache to bear as ever I remember suffering in all my life. I only mention these things to show that, if I did give way a little at first, under the dread that our captain was lost to us, it was not without having been a good deal shaken beforehand by more trials of one sort or another than often fall to one man's share. I had got over the choking in my throat with the help of a drop of water, and had steadied my mind again so as to be prepared against the worst when I heard the hail. Lord help the poor fellows, how weak it sounded! Surf boat ahoy! I looked up, and there were our companions in misfortune, tossing abreast of us, not so near that we could make out the features of any of them, but near enough, with some exertion for people in our condition, to make their voices heard in the intervals when the wind was weakest. I answered the hail and waited a bit, and heard nothing, and then sung out the captain's name. The voice that replied did not sound like his. The words that reached us were, Chief mate wanted on board. Every man of my crew knew what that meant as well as I did. As second officer in command, there could be but one reason for wanting me on board the longboat. A groan went all round us, and my men looked darkly in each other's faces and whispered under their breaths, The captain is dead. I commanded them to be silent, and not to make too sure of bad news at such a pass as things had now come to with us. Then, hailing the longboat, I signified that I was ready to go on board when the weather would let me. Stopped a bit to draw a good long breath, and then called out as loud as I could the dreadful question, Is the captain dead? The black figures of three or four men in the after part of the longboat all stooped down together as my voice reached them.
they were lost to view for about a minute, then appeared again. One man among them was held up on his feet by the rest, and he hailed back the blessed words. A very faint hope went a very long way with people in our desperate situation. Not yet! The relief felt by me and by all with me when we knew that our captain, though unfitted for duty, was not lost to us. It is not in words, at least not in such words as a man like me can command, to express. I did my best to cheer the men by telling them what a good sign it was that we were not as badly off yet as we had feared, and then communicated what instructions I had to give to William Rames, who was to be left in command in my place when I took charge of the longboat. After that there was nothing to be done, but to wait for the chance of the wind dropping at sunset and the sea going down afterwards, so as to enable our weak crews to lay the two boats alongside of each other without undue risk, or, to put it plainer, without saddling ourselves with the necessity for any extraordinary exertion of strength or skill. Both the one and the other had now been starved out of us for days and days together. At sunset the wind suddenly dropped, but the sea, which had been running high for so long a time past, took hours after that before it showed any signs of getting to rest. The moon was shining, the sky was wonderfully clear, and it could not have been, according to my calculations, far off midnight when the long, slow, regular swell of the calming ocean fairly set in, and I took the responsibility of lessening the distance between the longboat and ourselves. It was, I dare say, a delusion of mine, but I thought I had never seen the moon shine so white and ghastly anywhere, either at sea or on land, as she shone that night while we were approaching our companions in misery. When there was not much more than a boat's length between us, and the white light streamed cold and clear over all our faces. Both crews rested on their oars with one great shudder and stared over the gunwale of either boat, panic-stricken, at the first sight of each other. "'Any lives lost among you?' I asked, in the midst of that frightful silence. The men in the longboat huddled together like sheep at the sound of my voice. "'None yet!' But the child, thanks be to God, answered one among them. And at the sound of his voice, all my men shrank together like the men in the longboat. I was afraid to let the horror produced by our first meeting at closer quarters, after the dreadful changes that wet, cold and famine had produced, last one moment longer than could be helped. So without giving time for any more questions and answers, I commanded the men to lay the two boats close alongside of each other. When I rose up and committed the tiller to the hands of Rames, all my poor fellows raised their white faces imploringly to mine. "'Don't leave us, sir,' they said. "'Don't leave us!' "'I leave you,' says I, "'under the command and guidance of Mr. William Rames, "'as good a sailor as I am, "'and as trusty and kind a man as ever stepped. "'Do your duty by him as you have done it by me, "'and remember to the last,' that while there is life there is hope. God bless you, and help you all. With those words I collected what strength I had left, and caught at two arms that were held out to me, 
and so got from the stern sheets of one boat into the stern sheets of the other. Mind where you step, sir, whispered one of the men who had helped me into the longboat. I looked down as he spoke. Three figures were huddled up below me, with the moonshine falling on them in ragged streaks through the gaps between the men standing or sitting above them. The first face I made out was the face of Miss Colshaw. Her eyes were wide open and fixed on me. She seemed still to keep her senses, and, by the alternate parting and closing of her lips, to be trying to speak. But I could not hear that she uttered a single word. On her shoulder rested the head of Mrs. Atherfield. The mother of our poor little golden Lucy must, I think, have been dreaming of the child she had lost, for there was a faint smile just ruffling the white stillness of her face when I first saw it turned upward, with peaceful closed eyes towards the heavens. From her I looked down a little, and there, with his head on her lap and with one of her hands resting tenderly on his cheeks, there lay the captain, to whose help and guidance up to this miserable time we had never looked in vain. There, worn out at last in our service, and for our sakes, lay the best and bravest man of all our company. I stole my hand in gently through his clothes and laid it on his heart, and felt a little feeble warmth over it, though my cold, dulled touch could not detect even the faintest beating. The two men in the stern sheets with me, noticing what I was doing, knowing I loved him like a brother, and seeing, I suppose, more distress in my face than I myself was conscious of its showing, lost command over themselves altogether, and burst into a piteous, moaning, sobbing lamentation over him. One of the two drew aside a jacket from his feet, and showed me that they were bare, except where a wet, ragged strip of stocking still clung to one of them. When the ship struck the iceberg, he had run on deck leaving his shoes in his cabin. All through the voyage in the boat his feet had been unprotected, and not a soul had discovered it until he dropped. As long as he could keep his eyes open, the very look of them had cheered the men and comforted and upheld the women. Not one living creature in the boat with any sense about him but had felt the good influence of that brave man in one way or another. Not one, but had heard him over and over again give the credit to others which was due only to himself, praising this man for patience and thanking that man for help when the patience and the help had really and truly, as to the best part of both, come only from him. All this and much more I heard, pouring confusedly from the men's lips while they crouched down, sobbing and crying over their commander, and wrapping the jacket as warmly and tenderly as they could over his cold feet. It went to my heart to check them. But I knew that if this lamenting spirit spread any further, all chance of keeping alight any last sparks of hope and resolution among the boat's company would be lost forever. Accordingly I sent them to their places, spoke a few encouraging words to the men forward, 
promising to serve out when the morning came as much as I dared of any eatable thing left in the lockers, called to Rames in my old boat to keep as near us as he safely could, drew the garment and coverings of the two suffering women more closely about them, and, with a secret prayer to be directed for the best in bearing the awful responsibility now laid on my shoulders, took my captain's vacant place at the helm of the longboat. This, as well as I can tell it, is the full and true account of how I came to be placed in charge of the lost passengers and crew of the Golden Mary on the morning of the 27th day after the ship struck the iceberg and foundered at sea. And that's the point at which Dickens leaves off with his contribution to the wreck of the Golden Mary. When it was published in Household Words, there was an extra paragraph, which I think I'm right in saying was written by Wilkie Collins, and this provides a link into the other stories that the other writers are going to tell. And the paragraph goes like this. Before I go on to relate what happened after the two boats were under my command, I will stop a little here, for the purpose of adding some pages of writing to the present narrative, without which it would not be, in my humble estimation, complete. I allude to some little record of the means by which, before famine and suffering dulled our ears and silenced our tongues, we shortened the weary hours and helped each other to forget for a while the dangers that encompassed us. The stories to which Captain Ravender has referred as having been related by the people in his boat were matched by other stories related by the people in my boat. And in both cases, as I well know, the good effect of our following in this matter the example of Bly and his men when they were adrift like us was of unspeakable importance in keeping up our spirits and, by consequence, in giving us the courage which was necessary under providence to the preservation of our lives. I shall therefore ask permission, before proceeding to the account of our deliverance, to reproduce in this place three or four of the most noteworthy of the stories which circulated among us. Some I give from my remembrance, some which I did not hear from the remembrance of others after which the fortunate readers of Christmas 1856's special edition of Household Words had stories by Harriet Parr, the Reverend James White, Wilkie Collins, who writes the final section, one story told as a poem by Adelaide Ann Proctor, and two stories by Percy Fitzgerald. Percy Fitzgerald was about 18 years, I think, younger than Dickens. And he's one of that next generation of writers. He's not just the next generation, but in a way, the generation after this extraordinarily prolific writer, artist and sculptor. When Dickens died in 1870, Percy Fitzgerald was among the many friends and colleagues who rushed, in a sense, to memorialise Dickens and to record everything they could remember he said, to publish a lot of his correspondence that they'd received, 
and generally to be the delight of future biographers who would trawl their writings for extra nuggets about Charles Dickens. Fitzgerald was, I think, the longest lived, really, of any of Dickens's friends and colleagues. He dies in 1925. And among his works as a sculptor, well, you may have seen the great statue of Dr Johnson that adorns the strand at the east end of St Clement Dane's Church, looking across the road at the Royal Courts of Justice. And you may have tracked down, hidden away in its little niche at the site of Furnival's Inn, his wonderfully vivid tribute to his old mentor, the wonderful bust of Dickens that is there. And among his writings, a very useful little book called Bosland, in which Percy Fitzgerald, obligingly, talks about the real locations that Dickens had in mind in a number of his books, especially those set in London. You knew, didn't you? It was all going to come back to London again at the end. Thank you for listening.